Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of The Left Pocket Project, the platform that brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is The Left Pocket Project Podcast. As per usual, I wanted to start out by giving a shout out to all of the people who've liked, shared, reviewed, and interacted with the project on social media and on iTunes. I'd also like to thank those who've shown their support via Patreon. If you'd like to support the project and the podcast, just look up Left POC on social media, your favorite podcasting app, and on Patreon. In today's episode, I'm joined by guest Beatrice Wayne. Beatrice is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Sydney in International History. She holds an MA in History from the University of Pennsylvania and her PhD also in History from New York University. Her research and teaching focus on the global Cold War, transnational radical social movements, including networks between the U.S. and multiple nations throughout Africa, and the history of education. Her current book project, titled Restless Youth, Education, Activism, and the Peace Corps in Ethiopia, examines the role the Peace Corps program played in the trajectory of the Ethiopian student movement and the Ethiopian revolution. Throughout her work, Beatrice explores the role of race and gender in educational development, the political effects of nominally apolitical transnational organizations, and the complex relationship between educational initiatives and radical social movements. She previously served as the associate editor for the Radical History Review and as an associate editor for Scholastic Books. Today, I'm speaking with Beatrice Wayne, B, as she's more commonly known. How's it going? And thanks so much for being here with me. Well, thanks for speaking with me. So if you could, because you're right now you're a professor at the University of Sydney, correct? Postdoctoral research fellow. Okay. So that, I mean, in my mind, that's professor. That's good enough. Uh, <laughs> I'll but, take that. <laughs> but the official title, yes, is postdoctoral <laughs> fellow. So you work on Ethiopia and... You are from Canada, right? So can you tell me how you made it halfway across the world doing research on Eastern Africa and Ethiopia specifically? And then can you tell us a bit more about your research and uh, yeah, where you see it heading in the future? Sure. Okay. So I came about my initial project and interest in Ethiopia through a funny way. My mother uh, was a Peace Corps volunteer in Ethiopia and used to always tell me stories about it. Um, and when I started thinking about uh, doing a PhD in history, I was really interested in looking at it from a U.S. perspective specifically. She told me sort of really insane stories about how they, uh, how they were forced to sort of train for going to Ethiopia, which included being dropped off in the middle of West Philadelphia and being told to befriend people in the neighborhood because wow. that would be a good way for uh, volunteers to learn how to interact with Ethiopians. Oh my God. <laughs> um, so those sort of stories were so uh, both sort of mind-boggling, but also seemed rich for exploring the sort of racial imagination behind the foundation of the Peace Corps and what it meant and how that w would have shaped the program. Mm -hmm. um, so I started from a very U.S.-focused um, 
point of view. Um, but then I began to, through that interview, Ethiopian student activists in the 60s, people who had studied under Peace Corps volunteers. Um, and I was, first of all, interested that they found that they had very strong and surprisingly rich relationships with their teachers. But I just became fascinated in the movement, um, this movement that I didn't really know much about, but this really rich student movement that grew up in Ethiopia in the 1960s in reaction to uh, the authoritarian monarchy of Emperor Haile Selassie. Um, and the fact that the student movement really was the galvanizing force that led to this important revolution that happened in 1974, I just, I wanted to learn more. And my project really switched from being US focused then to thinking about uh, the Ethiopian student movement, how it became this sort of enormous force and all the different transnational ties, whether from Peace Corps volunteers or for from African students coming to study in Ethiopia, from Kenya and Tanzania, or from ties they had to Cuba, all of these different transnational ties and how they helped inform this student movement that eventually deposed an emperor. Mm. I mean, I think what you mentioned about your mother going to Philadelphia at least being told to go to Philadelphia to learn about how to interact with uh, people in East Africa is hilarious and sort of deserves a podcast in its own right. Um, but it's the really, the really crazy thing was that they were also given no money and told to like find people who would help them uh, support them for two days, which wow. everything about that is so so mind-boggling. Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, this is a set. This is going to be a separate podcast. So I'm going to have to hit you up in a few weeks, but like follow up on that. Um, but one of the things that I think it introduces, which is pretty fascinating, is there is a connection between um, what's going on in Ethiopia and many African Americans in sort of a different way. And in that way, and by that I mean, you know, um, in thinking about Selassie's legacy, Ethiopia's social and, and sort of socio-historical importance, right, as as an African nation that really kicked some imperial butt at the end of the day, <laughs> right? They were able to, to beat back the Italians and, you know, embarrass them in the international community. Twice. Yeah, <laughs> multiple times, exactly. And then came out of it as sort of this, this triumphant... Um, country and and triumphant group of people and I think the symbolism is really important and so it's interesting to hear the underside of that um where I think in the U.S. and beyond beyond Ethiopia there's such a celebration of that legacy and that history but then to think about the fact that within Ethiopia there's a different story um that's being told and there's a different set of narratives and struggles that are happening against um the emperor and and his you know, his power. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about that disconnect and, and maybe um, not only why it came about, but what Ethiopians at, at the time of deposing uh, Selassie, <laughs> how they were feeling about this, this sort of seemingly contradictory external image versus what they experienced at home. Absolutely. So that's sort of always been a struggle. Um, the Ethiopian student movement sort of really came into being in uh, the early 60s. In fact, in 1960, there was this abortive coup um, that was led in particular by uh, to the Niue brothers, Gurmame Niue, who studied at uh, Columbia and did his master's in Columbia and then his brother, who was a Brigadier General Mengistu Niue. And what's really interesting is that 
up until that moment, um, in Ethiopia, as well as elsewhere, Emperor Haile Selassie had been thought of in almost divine terms. He's the head of the Ethiopian church. He, you know, his dynastic rule came from the fact that he connected himself to the Solomonic dynasty, that he was the king of kings um, who descended from, from King Solomon. Um, and that was, he was revered in Ethiopia as well as elsewhere. But the question, there was many lingering questions, particularly around land reform. Um, he was an authoritarian ruler, but there was also a, a question outside of just his authoritarianism, the amount of sort of feudal system that was, uh, that characterized uh Ethiopia at the time. So landlords owned huge tracts of land and peasants worked on them. Um, this is might be getting overly complicated, but just to send the, to give a sense of the background, when this um, man, Gurmami Liwe, who was one of the people who led the coup, was studying in Columbia University, he wrote his master's thesis on colonialism in uh in British Kenya and wrote about the uh, terrible ways in which the British were taking Kikuyu lands. And from writing about that and thinking about land tenure and colonialism in this way, he came to sort of think of what was going on with Emperor Haile Selassie as its own form of injustice and in fact colonialism across the Ethiopian empire and then returned to Ethiopia and sort of took understandings um, from decolonizing movements elsewhere in Africa and then applied that to Ethiopia. And that's something that Ethiopian students would do throughout the 60s when they got into conversation with students from other African nations, instead of sort of seeing Ethiopia and Haile Selassie as this symbol of the success of African nations to resist colonization, they saw him as another figure of a colonizer and someone they had to work towards uh, bringing down in order to create a more equitable society in Ethiopia. Hmm. And this also, I mean, I'll, I'll get into the weeds here in a minute, um, but it's also important to keep in mind the relationship that Eritreans had with Ethiopia as well, uh, you know, in, in, again, sort of contrasting ideas, right? Ethiopia as this symbol of liberation, freedom, and really um, quintessential, even essentialist, to be quite honest, African uh, power at the time, um, compared to some of the actions that the government was taking in terms of neighboring states and annexation, right? Can you talk about that a bit as well? Sure, absolutely. So very complicated colonial history in the Horn of Africa, but by the 60s, uh, the Ethiopian Empire had annexed Eritrea, taken it over. It had before been in a trusteeship by the UN after um, the Second World War, given to Ethiopia, but originally a province of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie took increasing steps to sort of uh, limit the amount of autonomy this province had within the Ethiopian empire. And some of the things included forcing students to learn uh, in Amharic, the mm -hmm. language of uh, Ethiopia instead of uh, Tigrayan or Arabic, um, and then in English later as they uh, went to 
university limiting the power of Eritrean landlords and a number of other sort of repressive measures. Um, and that became a feature of the resistance to the Ethiopian empire and a feature of the Ethiopian student movement as well, talking about the ways in which the Ethiopian empire was in fact an empire and what that meant for it to be an empire. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting, even, you know, something that we think of as the pinnacle maybe of Ethiopian um, resistance to colonialism and its ideal as this uh, sort of free African nation. Uh, there's a story from uh, the 30s when the Italians arrived in southern Ethiopia. Um, the original, uh, some of the ethnic groups that lived in southern Ethiopia originally thought that the Italians were coming to free them from Amhara colonialism, Amhara oppression. That didn't, that was not a feeling that lasted very long. Sort of pushes us to reconsider how we think about empire in the Horn of Africa at this time. Mm -hmm. So on that note, if you could, if we could back up a bit and talk now about the student movement, how it's got, how it got its start, um, who were some of the figures and what was their sort of, what were the ideological underpinnings of what they did? It began really the earliest days of it started in the early sixties. One of it was one of the reasons that sort of spurred them to coalesce as a group was this abortive coup. Uh, students in general supported uh, the Niue brothers. And then when the coup was not successful, uh, Haile Selassie's government instituted some harsh measures against students, restricting um, funding, boarding school privileges, um, and also sort of taking a closer and more wary eye at students as a group. Um, and another factor, which I think is really interesting, sort of for thinking about Pan-African leftist movements in this moment, was the African Scholarship Program. In 1958, Haile Selassie uh, instituted this scholarship program to bring students from other African nations to Haile Selassie One University, the large central university in Addis Ababa. And when they started to arrive on campus, these students were disappointed about the lack of political organizing on campus. They'd come from these really rich um, campuses full of uh, decolonizing activism that were really fermenting in this moment of organizing against colonial oppression. And they found Ethiopia to be uh, sort of quiet and not, uh, not full of that sort of student resistance that they had come to know. And Ethiopian students in the meanwhile, found themselves really energized and interested in these sort of the fiery political rhetoric of these scholarship students and began to sort of think and apply those politics to their situation and looking at their authoritarian government with a more critical eye. Um, so from this early moment in the 60s and this, the student publications became a really interesting mix of students from Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Tanganyika at the time, mm -hmm. um, and Ethiopia. Um, and they created this, and it was at this moment in the early 60s, I think 64 was the first, uh, first get-together of this group that became known as the Crocodiles, and they were sort of the first Marxist-Leninist uh, 
sort of arm of the student movement. And they really directed and drew and organized underground to draw the movement more firmly in a leftist, explicitly Marxist-Leninist direction. Hmm. And the, you know, one of the things that I've heard in relation to Ethiopia, but something I hear often with regard to student organizing throughout Africa is that there's this sort of dominance of European ideology and thought, right? And that it's the Europeans who sort of (laughs) inspire this Marxism or this leftist (laughs) ideology. Another thing that I have a question about too is I'm wondering if, is there like a a belief or conspiracy perhaps that some of the early leaders of the coup or even the student movements are infiltrators perhaps involved with the CIA or other um, foreign states with sort of the foreign uh, aspect to all of this. Yes. So that's certainly an argument that Haile Selassie's government continually makes, Mm -hmm. um, continually makes whenever there's uh, threats to his rule, there's the phrase, there's a foreign hand in it. So the the argument is that people are trying to bring down this proud African nation from outside. He usually blames uh, the USSR, but also sort of uh, it's often done quite obliquely because he, uh, Haile Selassie himself, tries to maintain a position of sort of neutrality while accepting an enormous amount of military funding from the United States. So mm-hmm. he, he, Ethiopia, and I think that's something that people don't realize when thinking about also its legacy is that it received much, much more military funding than any other African nation from the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a key ally because there was this large uh, listening station, basically a Cold War spying station in Asmara, province of Eritrea that the U.S. had access to. And so when you think about sort of uh, imperialism and resistance to U.S. imperialism at that moment, there's many layers to it because the U.S. is giving money to Haile Selassie to put down freedom uh, movements in Eritrea so they can maintain access to this Cold War listening station. Um, which is just sort of a background to understand this. But as the student movement revs up in the 1960s, uh, Haile Selassie is continually saying that they are, there's a few bad apples that have been influenced by particularly the USSR um, and that they have lost their Ethiopianness and their Ethiopian uh, pride and heritage. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the student movement is taking the position that Haile Selassie is losing his pride in Ethiopia through his relationship to the U.S. and has, in fact, become sort of a stooge for U.S. imperialism. So both groups sort of try and take the position that they are the uh, incubators of Ethiopian culture and heritage, and they're the ones who are sort of resisting European, U.S., and outside influence. So that's a nice segue to thinking about uh, sort of what the student ideology was, and that's the question that I have. What were their main objectives? Um, What did these organizations look like, um, you know, in terms of uh, the makeup, right? Were they predominantly Ethiopian, or were they a mix of both Ethiopian and some of the foreign students who were there under the scholarship program? Um, 
also what the leadership what was the leadership like if you could talk a little bit about the makeup of the groups and their demands and um, sort of their political underpinnings as well sure so one thing to sort of say up front was that this was never a group that had one singular agreed upon uh, ideology or there was always sort of sectionalism and fighting and sometimes very productively, sometimes constant conversations happening about what the basis of the movement was, what was their key objectives. Um, and as that, but as it went forward into the later sixties and the early seventies, these became sort of hard sectarian splits that really drew the movement apart um, in some cases violently. Um, but there are some things that are sort of very characteristic and a key, a key, um, platform sort of drew the movement together was the platform of land to the tiller, which was that they believed that there needed to be immense land reform happen in Ethiopia. So peasants would have uh, sort of control access to and uh, autonomy in regards to their land um, that it couldn't, that Ethiopia could no longer be um, organized by this, sort of feudal system with land odors and the church owning over 90% of the land in Ethiopia. Um, so that was a key platform. Another key platform, and this grew as more and more students studied abroad. So throughout the 60s, the Ethiopian student movement was characterized by students who were very active within Ethiopia, but also two particularly large student movements overseas. One called Isuna and one called Isu, and that was the Ethiopian Student Union in e Europe and the Ethiopian Student Union in North America. Um, and as they became stronger and brought their, and interacted more with the Ethiopian student movement back in, uh, in Addis Ababa and elsewhere, they brought an anti-imperial voice that particularly focused on uh, anti-US imperialism and organized around getting the U.S. out of Ethiopia. That included getting them outside of this Cold War listening station, um, no longer accepting immense amount of military hardware, particularly the hardware that went to police who were putting down the student movement, mm -hmm. and, uh, and in fact, removing all aid as well. They By the late 60s, they were advocating for the removal of the Peace Corps program, which was the largest Peace Corps program in operation in Africa at the time, um, and all other forms of sort of what they saw as U.S. imperialism in their country. And so you mentioned as well the, the connection, or at least a part of the platform, being really heavily tied to these land rights. Were some of the students themselves uh, children of some of these agricultural laborers or were they agricultural laborers themselves? What was the sort of demographic uh, makeup or class makeup is a better, better way of putting it of the students, um, if there's a way yes. to characterize them? So some were, um, there were students who came from all over the Ethiopian empire and ended up studying in uh, Haile Selassie one university and becoming involved in the movement. But overwhelmingly the, the majority of the students were in fact the students of well-to-do landowners. And mm. so they were really uh, coming from a, a upper class background and were resisting on the basis of their, in many cases, you know, resisting the program that had led them to be where they were at, at the time and their own parents. 
Um, something that I think is interesting to think about is the student movement in relationship to other movements happening at the time. The student movement was by far the most sort of visible and obvious uh, resistance to Haile Selassie in the 60s, but they were very aware and constantly talking about the fact that this would not be, that as students it would not be enough, that they would not be able to do, to bring about a revolution. And so they were, especially as the 60s went on, and they started moving away from thinking about issues that particularly pertain to them, like, you know, better funding for students, better access to libraries, resisting uh, police crackdowns against student movements, and thinking more widely about land to the tiller, they began to think about how to how they would get peasants involved, the people who they, they believed they were advocating for, how would they get them involved in the movement? How would they be able to bring about a revolution? And this is when they turned to Marxism-Leninism as a way of thinking through, you know, creating a more broad-based movement. Mm-hmm. Was there a... So I'm curious here as well, was there something that was uniquely Ethiopian, or at least culturally speaking, that was already going on in the Horn of Africa, um, you know, maybe hundreds of years ago or something, that doesn't didn't even necessarily relate to um, Marxist-Leninism that they were drawing upon as well? I'll certain, I'm, I'm really curious about the Marxism too, and I'll get to that. But I'm wondering <laughs> if, if they, were they sort of mixing and matching, or were they solely looking towards um, these more like formal... Um, leftist ideologies uh, to connect with with the peasants it was it was much more formal it wasn't sort of in the way that one might think of um, you know Nayere or the idea of an African socialism that wasn't a strong feature of the Ethiopian student movement they were looking very specifically at these sort of uh, strict ideological formations that they drew on from Marxism. They, they were seeing themselves as both proud Ethiopians, but proud Ethiopians who needed a dramatic change in their government structure. Um, and in a way that didn't necessarily draw on, uh, on, on like the idea of a Ethiopian past, I think partially because the current government in Ethiopia at the time itself drew so much of its authority and power um, from the idea of this long Ethiopian past mm. that Haile Selassie could justify his uh, his absolutist monarchy because of the long history of uh, the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, mm-hmm. um, which was his name. So I think Ethiopian students sort of took a different point of view. So then this is a basic question, really basic. So my apologies in advance, but how'd they do? I mean, were they, were they successful in, in drawing upon these more, um, you know, sort of formal left ideologies, um, that were ran counter somewhat to this more traditional approach that the, the government took? How did, I mean, were they, were peasants actually interested in what they had to say? Were they, were they listening? Were they involved in some way? Um, and did the students sort of have moments of self-assessment when, when these things maybe didn't work out? How did, what did that look like? What did the negotiating look like on the inside? Yes. So they did have intense, uh, self-reflection, 
self-criticism, often criticism of each other, you know, when a movement <laughs> is not doing what you want it to be doing, that leads to a lot of uh, different recriminations across the board. Um, and this led, you know, one of the reasons that uh, led to a number of sectarian splits was the question about when, you know, how to involve peasants and then when do when do you move to armed resistance and how does this armed resistance involve peasants? What's the best way to build a broader based movement? Um, and these questions really tore in the early seventies, in addition to the question of uh, particularly Eritrean uh, independence really tore at the movement. Um, so, but your, your first question, part of that question was uh, how did they do? Um <laughs> Eventually, you know, there's a lot of scholarly consensus that it was the activism of these students in the 60s that really created the basis for the Ethiopian revolution, which did involve uh, people from all over the empire, uh, peasants as well as, uh, as, you know, taxi drivers, uh, teachers, non-commissioned officers, uh, even prostitutes were uh, part of the, uh, as a as a coalition, were organizing against the government in the in the early seventies. Um, but this, I think, it it would be very pat to say that this was based on the sort of Marxist Leninist uh, approach of these students. In fact, I think in many ways, people involved now, sort of reflecting on their incorporation to the student movement were sort of very interested in ameliorating the situation, very invested in the idea of advocating for land to the tiller, but were put off in different ways by sort of the strict Marxist-Leninist doctrine of some of the leaders of the student movement um, and didn't find it necessarily accessible. Um, some were very inspired by it, um, but not in a way that I would say sort of trickled down to the bigger movement that happened in the 70s, which was based on a culture of resistance and sort of the public resistance of these students, but not so much based on their specific ideology. Hmm. And the, some of the, so I'm curious about the leaders as well of these student movements, um, especially those that were sort of taking up the, the, the mantle of, of Marxist-Leninism, were they also looking towards some sort of political future? Like, were they in, in this process, were they looking beyond just the temporary moment of, of granting more rights um, for land ownership to peasants? Were they also kind of thinking beyond, beyond that and more towards, like, federal governance? Um, and what was their uh, imagination about what did their, their sort of what did they envision for that um, process? What did that look like? I think that their political and again, you know, this is a diverse movement made up of many different um, people. Mm -hmm. In general, the leaders, I would say, um, the really sort of charismatic and uh, fervent leaders that rose. Um, had a sort of utopian political imagination that was very focused on the here and now. I think because for many of them, the idea of successfully, you know, deposing a monarch of such, you know, esteem in both Ethiopia and around the world seemed so implausible that there wasn't a sort of 
practical consideration of like rising to some sort of political power in the aftermath. It was very much based on this sort of um, youthful, idealistic, inspired, particularly by Che Guevara, um, idea of revolution and being the leaders of a revolution. And that was their, that was their goal. There was a very popular chant in, uh, Ethiopia at that time by student leaders, which is guerrillas rise to power, guerrilla rise to power, following the example of Ho Chi Minh and Che Guevara. Hmm. Um, and I think they very much saw themselves as uh, revolutionary leaders, not uh, sort of uh, government leaders. Mm-hmm. And this is something that you said you were, you were, you know, expanding out, you know, you're, you're sort of building out of your original research to focus a little bit more about these, uh, more on these internationalist connections, right? Were there, were there any students that actually left Ethiopia and attended school in Cuba or other parts, like the USSR, for example? Um, because this is something that happens a lot in throughout Africa. Um, there are a lot of, of students who end up studying abroad and then coming back and sort of trying to implement some of the things that they learned while they were studying in these socialist uh, satellites or the center of, you know, socialism in the USSR. And so I'm wondering, you know, what did, was there any sort of external connecting going on or was a lot of it just based in sort of the imagery and the ideology, but not necessarily physical departure from Ethiopia? So they did, there were students that studied in the USSR and there was one student Agos Gebreyesus in the 60s who went to Cuba and sort of gained this aura amongst other students because he had been to Cuba and he had uh, <laughs> seen the, the socialist paradise. Um, but what's interesting to me is that it's not so much the students, particularly students in the USSR, were no more sort of radical or Marxist-Leninist than students that studied in Europe or mm-hmm. in the U.S., um, What's interesting to me and something I'd like to explore more with my research is the way in which the U.S. actually became this hub for access to thinking and talking about U.S. imperialism, um, but also thinking through uh, socialist revolutions. So a lot of the students in Asuna, the U.S. contingent and one of the more radical contingents of the Ethiopian student movement, uh, said that they learned about the Cuban Revolution, they learned about Vietnam, and they learned about the Chinese Revolution in the United States because they had much greater access to texts and information than they did when they were in Ethiopia because uh, there was a lot of restrictions about material that could be published and was available uh, in Ethiopia, and uh, texts on revolution were not considered uh, good reading by Haile Selassie's government. Um, so in fact, people who were in the United States learned, uh, had access to Marxist texts, which they didn't have in Ethiopia. Um, and then they would bring it back with them when they returned. So in a funny way, the U S became this hub of access to socialist ideas. And as the sixties went on, students began to plan more and organize with other Pan-African groups were interacting with, uh, the Black Panthers. There was a Bay Area contingent of Ethiopian students who became particularly radicalized. And when uh, Asuna had their sort of yearly conferences, they march in with fatigues and say, everyone, we're planning a trip to Cuba. We're starting armed revolution now. All of you, if you don't follow us, are just uh, stooges of the U.S. empire. Hmm. So 
I think it's really interesting to think about the sort of contradictory ways in which going to the U.S., uh, the site of that students identified of uh, imperialism in Ethiopia actually opened up access to thinking about socialist revolution. I mean, that's hilarious, at least thinking of it from the U.S. government perspective, right? Because <laughs> obviously that went completely against their plans. Um, and even to, into the present, right? I, th I think there's a sort of a belief on the behalf, on, on the part of, you know, uh, U.S. Um, government and then also U.S.-based um, academic sort of, you know, rectors and, and university presidents and the like, where they assume that, oh, the foreign students are going to be quiet, peaceful, and they're not going to, you know, they're just going to come here and like keep their heads down and do their work. But in reality, from then until now, we've seen that a lot of uh, foreign students do become pol very politically engaged and active and take back to their own countries a, a lot of pretty radical thought. Um, and, you know, and, and I think use the U.S., as you said, as sort of a space to um, really expand those ideas and think about them and dialogue with others who have, you know, come not only from similar backgrounds, but are really reading and engaging with this stuff and engaging in their real life experiences and thinking of ways to you know, deepen um, their own movements. I think it's extremely interesting because a, a remarkably consistent aspect of U.S. foreign policy has been this belief that uh, exposure to the United States by foreign students will make students likely to be well disposed towards the United States, mm -hmm. particularly in the Cold War, and will produce... Um, pro-capitalist students. <laughs> and even, even in strong changes in um, governments in the U.S., switching back and forth, there's never been a real diminishment in investment in particularly bringing soldiers and officers to study into the United States, because the idea is this will always be a positive. But we have so many examples of that not being the case even specifically in the case of Ethiopia, as I mentioned earlier, one of the leaders of the, the coup uh, in 1960s studied in Colombia and learned about and began thinking about colonialism and revolution in, uh, or thinking more, not learned, but, but thinking more th thoroughly through the meanings of colonialism when he studied at Columbia University. And then later the leader who would emerge from the Ethiopian revolution and create a Marxist-Leninist military junta, um, uh, Mengistu Haile Mariam, he studied as an officer in uh, Fort Levensworth and was uh, exposed to a lot of racism when he was studying there. And he said that that's one of the reasons why he turned so resolutely <laughs> against the United States was his exposure to U.S. racism when he was studying here. I'm just laughing because it's, it's like the amazing it's a, a really clear case of like dramatic irony you know like <laughs> oops <laughs> you know, like completely against what you guys planned um uh, totally opposite direction um but yeah that's super interesting and and really I think makes us rethink our even our own understanding of these directions in the present right um because I think sometimes we we have a tendency to believe or not you know me personally but I think some, what I hear a lot in um, some left-leaning discourse is this idea that that it's hard to be fully revolutionary in a place like the United States. It's hard to be um, to sort of engage these more revolutionary ideas in the seat of empire, right? Um, but I think what your research and many other you know points of, of 
history show is that revolution can happen anywhere. And there's, there's certainly, an, a, you know, again, a fascinating irony of the seeds being planted and growing uh, from a place as, as, you know, capitalist driven as the United States. So that's, that's interesting and totally against what they wanted. Um, so, you know, I'm one of the other things that 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 discussion makes me think about is something that's been coming up a lot in the present as well as we see student movements really surging, not only in the United States, but in particular throughout the African continent. Um, We just saw Jacob Zuma step down in South Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen a lot of changes in Zimbabwe with Mugabe being, um, I mean, sort of deposed and then replaced with someone from his own party. Um, But there's, there's been a lot of, um, you know, students at the center of these movements um, and really, demanding reform and change and pushing for um, new leadership in their in their governments. But one of the things that I hear in the background of this sort of hopeful, these hopeful moments, is there's a fear that the students themselves, despite the fact that they are, you know, um, seeking change, they ultimately have to rely on administrators and the power of the state and powers of institutions to really accomplish some of their goals. And so that's why I was asking the question earlier about sort of the, if there was a a look towards politics um, by these students. But I, I'm just curious about what happened in the aftermath. So if I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it's in the 70s, early 70s that uh, Selassie is deposed, correct? In, in 1974, yeah. Right. So then at that point, um, you, you had mentioned earlier that some of the students had a, they played, you know, a, a pretty big role in that revolution. Maybe not directly, but they definitely helped sort of um, foment the, the political change there. What happened after that? And what happened to the students themselves um, who had been sort of pushing for this in their own way? Um, you know, I'm sure at this point they're graduating and they're, they're looking towards their own futures. What's the aftermath of some of this, the, you know, more political organizing that's going on in the sixties on these campuses? Sure. So this is the sort of tragedy of the, this organizing and this revolution and also what makes it sort of, um, a challenge to study Ethiopian history in this moment, because, um, this organizing led to a lot of tragedy in the 70s following the revolution because the revolution which really started as a people's movement that incorporated students, teachers, taxi drivers, um, non-commissioned officers, people from all over the empire ended up um, being taken over um, by the military Um, and then uh, a particular segment of the military called the Derg uh, rose to power um, under sort of the auspices of the idea that they were supporting this people's movement, um, but there was an intense crackdown that fought in the years following, um, and a lot of the students who, first of all, they were split into two different parties. One aspect of the student movement decided to support the Derg and support um, the policies they put in because they said that they were um, they were reform movements like a redistribution of land. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was another section of the student movement that resisted this and said that it needed to be a movement that was not a military movement. The government had to be a government of the students and the people and not the military. Um, And the, uh, the Derg cracked down. Um, At first um, there was a, 
it gets very complicated. There was something called the White Terror and then the Red Terror, but there was a really bloody battle on the streets of Addis Ababa and, in fact, across the empire, and the students were killed and many, many were incarcerated. Um, and, in fact, both members of the, the two different split groups that I described, uh, EPRP and Maison, were, were eventually targeted and uh, many people were killed by the Derg. Um, it's been referred to in Ethiopia as a genocide. Hmm. Um, and there's a, a movement, there's a museum in Addis Ababa called the, the, the Red Terror uh, Museum um, that sort of documents this. Uh, so I think it's an example that we often see in cases of these sort of uh, very hopeful 60s or um, student youth-based movements that then get co-opted by uh, the military and then um, lose a lot of the sort of uh, basis and ideological overtones of, of the, that the movement began with. Mm-hmm. Was, the, was the military at this time receiving funding from any external sources as well? Um, like the U.S. or the U.S.S.R. any other... Pl- and, and also, the, the, I guess, the subsequent question there is, were these political parties receiving funding as well? Or if not direct funding, were they being infiltrated by um, some people from these countries? Because it's something I see a lot uh, in, in, you know, post, these sort of like post-socialist moments, right? The breakdown, <clears throat> excuse me, the breakdown of a lot of these movements has to do with external um, intervention, more or less, and, and you know, interruption of the process. Um. I would not say that that's really characteristic of what happened in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Um, Mengistu Hali Mariam was very, who rose to be the head of the Derg um, and the leader of this Marxist-Leninist military junta, uh, was very savvy and really played both the U.S. and the USSR against each other. He had an explicitly uh, Marxist-Leninist uh, socialist government, uh, scientific socialism was what he embraced, mm-hmm. but he wasn't, up until uh, 1976, he didn't reject funding from uh, the U.S. military, uh, and he was in negotiations with them eventually when it became clear that he was not going to be able to continue the military arms that he got from the U.S. before he settled very firmly with the USSR and received uh military weaponry from them um, and developed very strong relationships with Fidel Castro as well. Um, the Cuba sent uh, a lot of soldiers in their war with Somalia. Um, but uh, this wasn't uh, sort of the case of either the USSR or the U S sort of trying to shape the outcome of this revolution. Both of them sort of sat back and waited to see what would be the outcome before then making overtures to, to Mengistu. Hmm. So then um, once, you know, as these movements were breaking up and as the leadership um, was sort of battling itself, what was going on on the ground? You mentioned that a lot of people were being um, more or less terrorized, right, in the process and there was murder. Um, but in terms of the the peasants and other people of lower, lower economic means, perhaps, was there some sort of alternative happening sort of under the radar or were they also wrapped up or sort of caught up in, in a lot of the oppression that was going on? So by the, 
by the early 70s, because of the crackdowns, this is before the revolution, um, because of the crackdown of uh, Haile Selassie's government and the police, and there was an intense amount of spying going on, not just the CIA, but Haile Selassie had a what had been described as a Byzantine uh, amount of secret police and spies everywhere, including in classrooms. Hmm. Um, the movement had really gone underground. It was a very uh, strong and organized movement, um, but it was underground and it was underground in Addis Ababa and also elsewhere. Um, and one of the advantages of that and the functions of that is as these two groups um, moved from resisting Haile Selassie to resisting the Derg, they had these underground structures in place to continue to resist. Um, and they had, by that time, because there were students, you know, had come from all across the empire and then returned, in some cases, to their homes, they had cells in places all around the empire. Um, but for the majority of people in the 70s, they sort of the, the farming peasants, they were dealing with um, the fact that there was this uh, big land reform going and people were being moved and shifted all across the empire as part of the um, the land reform that was happening. There was resistance that was going, but that was also being very firmly cracked down on. Um, and the resistance was growing, I should say, uh, in the 70s, the Eritrean Liberation Front mm -hmm. reacted to the um, Derg in the same way they reacted to Haile Selassie, that was just a new sort of, uh, a new enemy that they had. Um, they resisted in the same way. And this Marxist-Leninist government, the military junta, was equally uh, aggressive in trying to stamp down Eritrean liberation. Hmm. So then I'm curious to know actually what happened then to the idea of leftism as an ideology that people embraced or rejected because of this, um, you said the Derg, right, is the name of the, the Marxist-Leninist government, correct? Um, yeah. What, you know, in, in sort of seeing the relationship that, or, or sort of, yeah, their relationship with, with sort of Marxism or leftism on the one hand, symbolizing a, a source of liberation and then transferring and becoming something that um, was at least picked up by um, people who were acting in ways that was that were, you know, oppressive. Um, what did that do to leftism as a whole in the nation? Um, and did people then become sort of reluctant to embrace anything that was on the left, um, especially thinking in terms of politics after all of these um you know, acts of oppression, um, maybe in the 80s or 90s even, was there sort of a, a rejection of, of more standard left procedural and ideological approaches or no? Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's important to note that Mengistu was in power until uh, all throughout the 80s, until 1991, when mm. the new government pushed him out. And he's actually alive and in uh, Zimbabwe, um, and has been there uh, hiding from extradition to Ethiopia for uh, genocide. Hmm. Uh, and so Ethiopians have actually really been, uh, he was there because he was a friend of Mugabe, and people have been following very closely because in Ethiopia, um, the changing government in Zimbabwe, hoping that there might be openings to 
to force his extradition back to uh, to Ethiopia. But uh, to answer your question, uh, there was, a, I think, a real reaction and resistance to sort of not just socialism, but any um, sort of leftist organizing in the 90s. And this was true of uh, formerly radical students themselves who had, you know, seen their friends shot in the street, who had spent years in jail, um, who had seen all of their sort of ideas crumble around them. And as part of my research interviewing a lot of these people, not to say that they have they no longer have a left politics, but many of them have turned to embrace development ideas um, and sort of neoliberalism mm -hmm. because it feels, I think, a lot uh, safer than the sort of radical revolution that they had um, embraced in the 60s in which they saw turn um, so violent. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's only now in this moment that in the, maybe the past five years that we've seen a different sort of radical movement emerge in Ethiopia more clearly. Um, and it's framed in a very different way. It's not framed in a sort of Marxist Leninist way, but it's framed as a very pro-democratic movement coming from Oromia. Yes. I was going to ask you about that actually, because, um, I was in Brazil when they were having the Olympics in Rio. <laughs> and one of the things that they kept showing on TV was about a runner from Ethiopia who had been making the symbol, um, of the Oromia people, correct? Or the Oromo people, I think they're called. Um, yeah. and you know, in Brazil, it was sort of just like, oh, there's this like ethnic strife going on in Ethiopia. And he wants to stay in Brazil, perhaps to try to go to somewhere else. But it, it sort of became this like little mini soap opera of its of its own. <laughs> um, like what's going to happen with the runner, you know, and I think people were following it in that way, just sort of fascinated with um, whether he was going to stay in Brazil or go somewhere else, or if he could, what would happen to him if he went back home. Um, and so, you know, when I was getting ready to when I was preparing to interview, I thought, oh, my gosh, I have to ask her about <laughs> what happened to him, because he sort of fell off in the news. Um, so if you could give us a little bit of background on actually what his protest was about, tell us a little bit more about what's going on in Aromia and also where is he today? Like what is, what's <laughs> happened to him since the Olympics? I think it's a really interesting thing to think about, particularly in light of the conversation we've been happening, because I think in, uh, in global news, when you hear about this and particularly in relationship to the Olympics, uh, Faisa Lalisa's uh, protest was described as in reaction to ethnic strife, right? Mm -hmm. We think of it, we, it's been portrayed as uh, an Oromo issue, an Oromo nationalism, and something to do with, like, you know, how it's often portrayed in the media as, like, warring ethnicities in Africa. Mm -hmm. um, and it completely ignores things that are connected to what we've been talking about the question of land, and that's a lot of what the Oromo protests are about. It's both about um, Oromia having more access to power and to autonomy and to have a larger political voice in Ethiopia, but much of the um, protests are around the question of land and the government in Addis Ababa basically taking large swaths of land that people are using for subsistence farming 
or for other forms of farming and giving it to corporations and uh, giving it to development. It's basically dislocating people from their land. Mm. Um, and so there are lots of ties to, you know, the advocation for land to the tiller. And that's an ongoing, uh, an ongoing question that is animating a lot of these protests and it's connecting. It's not just in, um, Aromia, I should say that there's in the Amhara regions, there's been a lot of protests and there's been a lot of connections between different ethnic groups and reaction to, uh, they see as an authoritarian and an anti-democratic government in Addis Ababa right now. Um, the, the runner is, I believe, still in Washington, D.C. because he uh, believes that he will be uh, assassinated or um, incarcerated if he goes back to, uh, to Ethiopia. And in fact, a number of the people that I've spoken to uh, that I've interviewed former student activists who have some connection to politics in Ethiopia now also feel like they can't return to the country because they're worried that they might be uh, incarcerated. Just yesterday, though, a large number of political prisoners were released, uh, including some prominent journalists uh, by the Ethiopian government in reaction to this wide swath of protests. Mm -hmm. um, and something that I also think is really interesting to think about this current movement is that it's a youth movement, it's a student movement, um, and by students I mean high school students as well as university students. And that's something that I think a lot of scholarship and consideration of radical activists in the 60s sort of misses out on. Mm -hmm. um, is that a lot of these students are high school students as well. Um, and that is something to think about is in the development of uh, someone's politics, starting the connections that tie, you know, high school to university, universities in Ethiopia to universities in New York and in uh, London and in Moscow um, and in Dar es Salaam. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a lot of interesting work has sort of been starting to emerge on thinking through these networks. So I'm curious to know um, what's been the reaction, you know, when you're doing your interviews or when you're discussing your work with people who are from Ethiopia, from um, Eritrea perhaps, um, and from the Horn of Africa as a whole, has there been, um, you know, what's what's been the response um, to sort of looking back at this past and particularly thinking about some of the trauma that suffered in the 70s um, as a result of, of what some may see as a culmination or sort of the dark side of the protests. Um, I'm wondering how people have read uh, your sort of excavation of this, especially <laughs> as there's ongoing stuff. I mean, if, if there are ongoing issues, are some people thinking of the period that you're looking at as a cautionary moment or cautionary tale? Um, what's been the response? So I entered into my interviews and research from a particular point of view, which I think made it a little bit easier um, for this discussion to emerge organically. So I started my, my dissertation specifically looked at uh, the relationship between teachers, Peace Corps teachers and their Ethiopian students and how this informed the uh, way the movement developed both the, strong relationships that developed between teachers and students, but then also how the Peace Corps became a sort of key organizing uh, 
framework for the students. They wanted the Peace Corps to get out of their country. And even though they had close relationships with their teachers, they marched and protested and threw rocks at uh, Peace Corps headquarters hmm. advocating for them to leave the country. I mean, I can't um, blame them sometimes, right? Like, this is, no. <laughs> <considering>. no it, <laughs> this is what was so interesting about sort of that research is looking at that tension and how the, those both, those things could coexist very mm-hmm. easily. Um, and in fact, many Peace Corps teachers began to agree with their students and resigned en masse in Mm. the beginning of the 70s because they came to see their presence as problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, But because I entered into these interviews, really discussing relationships, and these people had close relationships with their teachers almost always, it could then become a way to enter into talking about personal relationships and then move on to the relationships that people had to ideologies to the movement to other students and other organizing um and so that felt less fraught than entering into the oral interviews saying so you know what did it mean to you to be a member of EPRP um instead of Maisel mm-hmm. um but I would say if this is a really right now particularly because more and more works are coming out by Um, people who are involved in the Ethiopian student movement, and many of them take, you know, strong arguments for or against the students. Men are very critical of the students and blame what the trauma that happened in the 70s on some of the students organizing in the 60s, and some try and take a more sort of empathetic approach. Um, One thing that I would recommend, um, and maybe I'll put this up in the resources section, is a really interesting collection of oral histories um, by a historian and also former member of the student movement. His name is Baharu Zode. Mm -hmm. Um, And he got a whole bunch of former Ethiopian students together at a conference from different um, relation, who had different relationships to the movement and were on opposing sides, in fact, of each other in the 70s. He got them together at a conference to sort of create a shared oral history which is a really interesting, I think, uh, methodological way to approach oral history, but also an interesting way to think through this very, uh, very tendentious movement um, in in the aftermath. Um, so I would highly recommend it. It's called "Documenting the Ethiopian Student Movement: An Exercise in Oral History." Hmm. And my final question, although I want to keep, I always say this whenever I'm interviewing people, I want to just keep going. And uh, unfortunately, there's a finite amount of time that people have <laughs> in the day, right? They're only 24 hours. Um, but I'm interested really in, in where you're taking your research um, and thinking about, again, these sort of international connections. And I'm wondering just from your own perspective and perhaps um, reflecting on some of what you see in the field, um, what's the impact that you hope to have with your research or sort of uh, what do you, what are you seeing um, as a trend that may emerge or sort of an even ideological turn perhaps um, with regard to making these historical connections uh, between Ethiopia and and other nations in Africa and spaces beyond it? Um, Because I, you know, I think, again, at least in my research and some of the things that I've seen elsewhere, it seems like a lot of the relationships with other nations um, within Africa and beyond it can be so fraught, especially if you're looking at the period of the Cold War, right? There's a lot of tension, um, a lot of violence, and 
it's never a cold war in Africa. It's a hot war, right? Almost in, mm -hmm. in almost every space. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm wondering in doing this kind of work and making these, these historical connections, what do you foresee as being sort of the larger meaning and purpose of it? And what can people perhaps even in the present, um, learn from these types of, of moments of connection in the past? So I think that's an amazing question. Um, I'm interested in moving forward and thinking more through what these links mean, these transnational networks, this transnational organizing, both, you know, within Africa, students who are coming into Ethiopia and leaving the ways in which Ethiopian students were inspired by African decolonization movements, but also I'm really interested in exploring more about the links between sort of the triangulation between Ethiopia, Cuba, and the U.S., and how this these transnational networks emerged using the U.S. in a strange way as a hub for access to Cuba. Um, I've done research on sort of a little bit of the later period of the 70s when Cuban soldiers came to Ethiopia and developed strong ties when there was the war with Somalia. Um, and there's also a really interesting relationship between Cuba, Ethiopia, and Eritrea, because in the 60s, Cuba was supporting Eritrean liberation. And then in the 70s, they wanted to support uh, Ethiopia against Somalia because Somalia was backed by the United States. But they also didn't want to, they were had that legacy of supporting Eritrean liberation. So it became very complicated. Mm -hmm. um, Eritrea has also been referred to many times as the Cuba of Africa. Mm. Um, and it's a sort of understudied country. Uh, so going forward, I would, I want to think through these sort of transnational ties and where do I see the scholarship go? I hope with, Scholarship is turning towards a greater focus on these connections, these sort of South-South connections, connections, transnational networks that connected um, countries within Africa, but also to South and Latin America, to Asia, and how the ways in which these connections were really important and key, because this is what I've seen in my research, how fruitful they are for strengthening, solidifying, and growing uh, leftist movements and in ways in which you wouldn't expect the way in which different geographical spaces open up ways to access different forms of ideas, different forms of organizational tactics, different resources. And then these come to build movements in different ways. Um, so I'm, I guess that's where I hope that my research can, uh, provide insight in our contemporary moment too, thinking through, both the uh, both the limitations and the opportunities that this transnational left organizing can create for movements. Well, I look forward to reading uh, whatever you end up publishing. <laughs> I know because I know you've, you've had, like I said, you've had a transition. Hopefully, there's a way you can kind of bridge both of those stories, both the the starting point with the Peace Corps, um, and then sort of you know continue uh, continue the reader into these more transnational movements and spaces because it's all very fascinating work um and i think especially at least speaking as a us american right i don't 
despite the fact that there are lots of people from Ethiopia and from the Horn of Africa living in the U.S., I don't learn very much about it in school, didn't in the past, and even though I work on, you know, African history, it's still something that's sort of a muted space um, in a lot of the, you know, the historiography. It's just, it's despite the legacy of Ethiopia and its social importance, we unfortunately don't learn a ton about it um, you know, beyond that. And so I think your your work contributes to a much larger story that we definitely need to be more aware of, um, both in the U.S. and beyond. So thank you so much, B. This was great. And I really appreciate you joining the Left Pocket Project podcast for the day. So thanks. I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you. And thank you for listening to episode 10 of the Left Pocket Project podcast. If you haven't done so already, be sure to check out the Left Pocket Project's content on social media by searching for Left POC, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. Showing your financial support by donating a dollar or more a month on Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc. And by listening to the podcast, as well as checking out additional resources on the discussions we have in each episode on Spreaker, SoundCloud, and iTunes, where you can also leave a review. Thanks so much again, and have a good one. Thank you.